Talk RL. This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Michael Littman is a professor of computer science at Brown University. He's not your average CS prof, nor is he your average RL researcher. Professor Littman was elected ACM Fellow in 2018 for contributions to the design and analysis of sequential decision-making algorithms in artificial intelligence. His research has garnered a monumental number of citations. uh, Google tells me that it's over 35,000, and he continues to publish innovative new research in RL. Professor Littman, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, uh, you're welcome. I guess I've always thought of myself as being pretty average, so that's kind of exciting that you see me otherwise. <laughs> so your your thesis back in '96 was titled "Algorithms for Sequential Decision Making," uh, and you're and you're still in the field. Um, you're like a real OG of RL. Well, thanks. I, I certainly feel that way. I, I know that uh, recently when I've been teaching a reinforcement learning class on campus, I start with the same banter that I started with a long time ago, which is like, now keep in mind that you know what machine learning is. And this is, you know, this is like the the weird little baby brother of machine learning. We're not doing supervised learning. And now it used to be that people would be like, yeah, it's okay. We just need an extra class. <laughs> and now they're, they're like, no, 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 we absolutely intend to be here. We want to learn about reinforcement learning. So it's kind of a very exciting time. How did you initially come to get interested in this area that became the major focus of your career? Because it's just so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess I guess I first started to think about it. Uh, so I was in college in the, I guess, mid late eighties, and uh, this was this was during the one of the previous neural network waves, and so people were talking about machine learning, and when I heard the phrase, the first thing that came to mind was. Well, what I le- later learned would be reinforcement learning, you know, trying to get machines to use their experience to behave, to make decisions. And so that was what really was really the, the driving, interesting uh, example of machine learning to me. I wrote, I wrote a paper in a psychology class in college about, you know, what I thought that meant and how we would use, you know, quote unquote, machine learning to solve problems like playing tic-tac-toe. And... Uh, only later came to discover that actually this there there was an area that worked on it. It wasn't what I thought was the area that worked on it, but there was stuff going on, and I was I was very excited. Um, in fact, uh, right out of college, I worked at a, an organization that was called Bellcor, which had been kind of spun out of the Bell system, spun out of Bell Labs, and my. My mentor uh, in in my group that I joined is it was a guy named David Ackley, and he had done his dissertation on uh, like a genetic machine for doing optimization and decision making. And I told him about my interests. I told him about the kinds of problems that I thought were really cool. And he's like, oh, oh, that's reinforcement learning here. And he gave me Rich Sutton's 1988 paper. This was, uh, you know, we're talking 1989. So this was like fresh out, <laughs> like a brand new idea that was, that the people were talking about. And I said, wow, this is really cool. How do I learn more about it? He's like, well, it's new, but we can just have Rich come and give a talk. And so he just reached out and had Rich Sutton come and give a talk in our in our research group. <laughs> Great. And so I'm like, can you do that? Can you reach into the literature and pull out actual live human beings? Um, it was quite quite a revelation for me, and it was it was you know super valuable to get in at that stage and start learning about you know how people were thinking about these problems, what what are the what were the open questions that were still going on, and and to try to engage with them. Uh, yeah, from kind of from the, almost the beginning. 
Well, reaching into literature and talking to real human, that's kind of how I feel today talking to you. So thanks so much again <laughs> for being here. Um, oh, my do, pleasure. When, when you look at your research career, uh, do you think of it as, as having different chapters or, or is, it, is, it, is it one long um, episode? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, only in retrospect is it easy to think about chapters, but it is the case that, that I've, I've changed jobs a couple of times and each time there's a job change, there's an opportunity to kind of step back and say, okay, what am I trying to do here? What's, what's the real plan? And so it was uh, certainly the case that when I, when I stopped working with Dave and went to go get my PhD, that was a kind of an opportunity to kind of have a bit of a change. When I, when I started as a professor at Duke, um, the two areas that I was most interested in were, were reinforcement learning or sequential decision-making and also information retrieval. And so I actually had one PhD student working with me on each of those topics. When I finished up at Duke and moved to, uh, well, ultimately moved to Rutgers, it occurred to me that it's just too hard to stay on top of these two fields, both of which were moving very, very rapidly. So I wasn't going to be able to help guide people and mentor people in both reinforcement learning and information retrieval. And I thought, okay, well, reinforcement learning is the one that I really want to stick with. So I named my research group when I got to Rutgers, the Rutgers Laboratory for Real Life Reinforcement Learning, or RL Cubed. And, and just, yeah, I just didn't work with people who were doing other things anymore. So that was definitely a kind of a chapter boundary. I stopped doing language and I, and I really focused in on, on decision-making. I came to RL after deep RL was already a, a thing. Can you help us understand, like, what is it like for someone like yourself um, being part of this deep reinforcement learning boom over the past few years? Um, and whereas y y you started long before that, uh, when it was so much smaller? Hard to, <laughs> hard to say how to put it in terms that, you know, would look reasonable to somebody who, who uh, you know, kind of joined during this later phase. Um, you know, a lot of the questions are still the same questions. Um, some things that we thought we used to think worked, but didn't work now kind of work. So, so, so back in the day, you know, for just as a one concrete example, um, around the time of, of TD Gammon, there was, there was uh, work that Jerry, Jerry Tassaro did, uh, training up a TD algorithm to play backgammon. And so kind of pretty much before that paper, there wasn't, there weren't examples of, there was plenty of examples of TD learning being implemented and tested, and you can make graphs and stuff, but it wasn't really solving a problem that you would think of as a problem. That, that anything that TD learning had been doing, there was some better way that we knew how to do it. We just wanted to do it with TD because we wanted to understand the properties of TD, and we thought it was really important. But with, with Jerry's work, uh, he, was, he was getting a machine to play backgammon at a level that, that no one had ever seen before, right? It was playing the game better than... Uh, arguably as good as the best people and and the seemed like the secret sauce to that was was some some part of reinforcement learning or or temporal difference learning and the way that he was doing it the way the way that he was representing the value function was with neural networks <laughs> right so it all sounds very familiar right you're going to play some hard game that we didn't know that machines couldn't play very well before by combining a neural network and reinforcement learning you know not so different from the alphago work and uh, and it was really remarkable, and there was like a, a a big jump in the number of people who were excited and interested in in applying reinforcement learning to different problems. And shortly after that, you saw people applying it to things like elevator control or or cell phone uh, channel allocation, all kinds of practical problems that that fit the mold. Um, and generally, people tried to combine a neural net with 
this 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 notion of kind of a temporal backup. And the funny thing about it, maybe not funny at all, is that it was actually really hard to get it to work. The neural networks were very, very brittle, and it was pretty common for them to actually improve for a while, and then as you continue to train them, they would just completely collapse, like worse than random after that. They just, they knew nothing at all about the problem or even how to answer questions. And so I've, I've had many, back in that, in that time, I, I, I supervised projects from many different students trying to do exactly that, apply a neural net to learn a value function for some, you know, so a video game or, or a or board game or some control problem in the real world. And the neural nets were just too flaky. Uh, we ended up really not using them effectively ever. And so that was sort of the dirty secret is that Jerry Tesoro could get neural nets to learn amazing things, but the rest of us, it was much more hit or miss. And so I think one of the things that's, that's really exciting this time around is that the neural net training process seems to be a lot more robust, that we're able to get uh, many more people are able to train many more problems uh, effectively. And part of that is I think we have a better culture now of sharing code. Uh, and part of it is I think that the, the training algorithms are just, are just more solid than they were back in the 90s. Tassaro's project seemed really ahead of his time. And people talked about it for many years afterwards. Uh, when, you know, when I first got really interested in this, at the time it seemed like DQN was the thing that started this. But looking back at that backgammon work, it's not really that different from DQN. I, I think they had a simpler network, um, but it, was, it seemed really ahead of his time. And like you said, um, the grandfather of, of, of AlphaGo. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that one of the... One of the things that wasn't at, I think, hmm. so there's a lot to love about the DQN work, and it is really exciting that it got a lot of people jazzed about this whole area. But looking at the paper from the, from the broader perspective, one of the things that they pushed on is, whoa, reinforcement learning, that's really powerful. We can do all sorts of things with it. But a lot of us already knew that. <laughs> what we really wanted to hear is, what are you doing differently from what Tesaro did? What are you doing differently now? What, what ideas have you instantiated in your algorithm that we didn't know how to do before that are making this work? Like we knew we could have done this 30 years ago. Like why, why now? Why is it working now? And, um, and there are reasons for that. There are things that they did in the in the DQN work that made the training of the network more robust. But that was that was sort of downplayed in a way that I think is unfortunate. I think I think there was a lot to learn from their success, the engineering of of what they put together, and uh, the algorithmics of what they put together. They 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 patented that, and if you read the patent, <laughs> um, the DQN, they, it really hinges on the target network. They have yeah. the two networks and the, the target network. So maybe that was one of the innovations. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the things where looking back, I think we would have been reluctant to try that back in the day because it doesn't seem like it would be reactive enough, responsive enough. And so, you know, another thing they did in, in some of that early DQN work is is to say, we're going to throw away a ton of data. Like we're going to run whole trajectories and just, you know, we'll just remember one transition from that whole thing because that's going to give us statistical independence of, of uh of the samples that we're using for training. And like, we would have never done that back in the day, partly because computers were just a heck of a lot slower. And so the idea of, of running a whole trajectory and only keeping one sample from it was unthinkable. Um, so, so they, they had a wider, but when they revisited these questions, I think back in, in the, you know, mid 2010s, uh, things had shifted, right? The computer power had shifted the, the palette of, of engineering 
opportunities was more open. And I think they took, took advantage of it in a really beautiful way. You recently put on the RLDM conference in Montreal. That's reinforcement learning and decision-making, which happens every two years. That sounds like a very unique conference being so multidisciplinary. Is there, is there a common language across all these disciplines for this stuff? So I, I, I love RLDM. I think it's a, it's a fantastic conference, and I'm, I'm delighted that I had the opportunity to contribute. Um, th- the, basically, there was, there's a core set of, of reinforcement learning researchers who felt like – it's interesting because for a long time they had been saying – people like, like Andy Bartow uh, would be approached saying, hey, reinforcement learning, it's really cool. You should have your own conference, right? There's a machine learning conference. There's machine vision conferences. There's planning conferences. There's AI conferences. You know, there should totally be a reinforcement learning conference. And he and and I think also Rich Sutton uh, were very much of the opinion that that would be a that would be a huge mistake for all the fields concerned. That it was very important to make sure that reinforcement learning was always being done in in service of the broader AI goals, and separating it out from that that c- community would be damaging. And so they resisted the the push to have a conference for a very very long time. And I think they finally. They finally caved. <laughs> it was probably around the same time that Andy was getting ready to retire, um, so he maybe had less less say in the process. But the but the way that the 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 powers that be decided to instantiate a conference was very deliberate, very conscious. They they decided they wouldn't have it be uh, a conference that had proceedings, right? So so if you want to have a paper that gets published, and academics need to ha- have papers that get published, you couldn't do it in this conference. You'd have to publish those papers in other conferences. So that was one way that they they tried to ensure that things didn't split off. And the other thing is they said, well, if we're going to have a meeting anyway, we might as well make it as multidisciplinary as possible. There's there's interesting things happening in decision-making and reinforcement learning across, I don't know, half a dozen or more uh, academic disciplines. Let's bring those people together and give, and have an opportunity to just talk about the problems. And so, yeah, so your question in terms of is there really a common vocabulary? It's it's pretty remarkable. Um, we had at this conference this year people from from marketing, from neuroscience, from some sort of cognitive and behavioral sciences, from computer science and robotics and, and AI and engineering. And yeah, you know, we kind of all talked at least a similar enough language that the uh, the talks really translated very nicely from from sub area to sub area. And so. Everybody seemed engaged the whole time. Uh, it's not like the neuroscientists would get out and leave the room when we were talking about computational issues or vice versa. There was plenty to learn from each other. And I, I think a lot of people really enjoyed that, uh, getting to, to think outside their own discipline. So I didn't get to make it to this conference, and I, I have, my regret is very high about that. But um, <laughs> can, can you share with us? I saw there was a great list of speakers. Well, do you, were there any highlights that you would want to share with us? Sure. So, well, um, you know, one highlight is that the next conference in two years will be in Providence, Rhode Island, my, my home institution. So, you know, try to make it out to that one because that one will be good too. Um, but in terms of highlights, I mean, the structure of the conference is interesting. There's, there's one track. Uh, all the talks happen in, in one track. And all the talks, all the main talks are invited. There's shorter talks that are contributed. The people uh, submit papers or extended abstracts and they get selected to present their work. Um, but most of the talks are, well, I don't know about most of the talks, most of the minutes of the talks are spent on people that were invited by the by the program chairs, and that was me and Kate Hartley at NYU. 
And, um, you know, I, I, it would be, it would be really rough of me to actually say, Hey, you know, this talk, this area, that's great. And the rest of the stuff, meh, you know, because these were, these were <laughs> the, the cream of the crop, right? These are the people that Kate and I said, boy, you know, if we, if we had a conference and we got to choose every talk in the conference, which we kind of did, uh, what would we want to hear about? And this was exactly what we wanted to hear about. We, we heard, uh, just wonderful results and, and, and interesting ideas from all across the spectrum. So I can, I can, I can give a couple highlights. Um, so one, one piece of work that I think was really well received uh, was the work on distributional reinforcement learning, which is the idea that you're, you create a reinforcement learner that instead of just trying to predict expected future reward, it was trying to pre uh, predict multiple, they call them expectiles. So, um, uh, percentiles of the expectations of the returns that the, the agent is getting at each point in time. So it's, it's giving it a harder problem. It's trying to produce not just the expected value of future return, but the whole distribution. What does it look like? How, what's the likelihood that I'm going to get a, a really high return from here? What's the likelihood I'm getting a low return? And you can always turn that into an expected value by averaging that distribution. But, um, but, and that's what, that's what they end up doing in deciding how to actually behave. But the learning problem is to learn the entire distribution. And um, there, there's really interesting stuff happening with that idea, both in terms of what does that mean? Like, it seems to work really well for, for, for example, learning to play Atari games. Why? Like, we're not using that distribution. Why is it help to learn it? Well, and why is it on better? The so this is like the C51 and the Belmare's uh, line of work? That's right. The IQM? Yes. Yes, that's right. And and so we heard at least one talk that talked specifically about what have they been able to figure out in terms of why it's helping. So another line of work that we heard about uh, related to distributional RL is reanalyses of some experiments on actual biological systems that are learning. So measurements of neurons, patterns across multiple neurons, and arguing that the patterns of learning that you see in in these neurons in a real in a real brain are capturing the distributional information about the returns. That's that there's evidence that the brain is doing distributional RL and not just expected value like TDRL. And so that was that was. I mean, I think it's still early going. I don't think that this is definitive uh, quite yet. But it is really exciting and tantalizing. And they did a very careful job of of, of analyzing the results and presenting them and explaining why uh, why it would make sense for a brain to do that sort of thing. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, another another thing that that really stuck with me is uh, another scientist talked about risk seeking behavior. Uh, so one of the things you observe in people who are addicted to gambling is that they they really <laughs> they really like gambling. I mean that's that that's that's what it means to be addicted to gambling. And um, one of the, the the properties that you see in such people is that they actually tend to downweight risk. So they're that when they're deciding what to do, they're 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 not very worried about the downside. They're they're more excited about the possible upside, and this is visible not just in their gambling behavior, but if you actually give them uh, sort of classic Kahneman Tversky type problems to to decide, oh, what would you do if you had the choice between this kind of thing and this kind of thing? You see a consistent pattern of the way that they they make their decisions. And one of the things that was cool is they is our speaker talked about how that you can you can get rats to have this behavior. You can do various things to rats, especially making them uh, cocaine addicted. Turns out to be a way of getting to exhibit exactly this kind of pattern of, of choices. 
but another really interesting thing is that if you when you're when you actually make them do the tasks, when you show them uh, the choice and then they make the choice and then they get rewarded, if in addition to just giving them the juice or whatever it is that um, that they're that they're trying to maximize, if you also make lots of flashing lights and loud sounds that go you know kiching kiching kiching, um, that tends to put their brain into a mode where they're much more likely to be risk seeking and and much more gambly. And uh, I think the reason that this is really striking to me is if you think about how casinos are, are, are constructed, especially slot machines and casinos, the, the machines make a big deal about winning. Or these, these online sites that, that let you play, um, I don't know, various kinds of little, little games. Like they don't, you don't just get points and then you're done with it. There's also animations and, and noises and, and, and sorts of things that seem to be exactly what causes brains to become more risk-seeking. And so that was super creepy and super exciting to think about because it means, well, maybe we have ways of, of helping people and way, ways of, of intervening to help them not be so addicted when it becomes a problem. Um, but also creepy because, like, I know I'm being exposed to these kinds of stimuli all the time and they're, they're wreaking havoc with my reward system and how I interpret rewards. And so it's made me a little more cognizant of, okay, you know what? I think I'm done with this game for now. I think this game is having its way with me and not the other way around. Wow, that just reminds me of social media with the constant little rewards that we get. Exactly, yeah, we, we exactly. Right, and so I think... You know, somebody at some level knows this, right? They're building, people are building interfaces that are definitely tapping into this. I think maybe the more people that know it, the more aware people are of it, the hope is the more we can protect ourselves when we're being manipulated, right? Sometimes it's just fun. And if you want to spend a little time having fun, like that, we shouldn't be worried about that. But in other cases, it starts to creep in and kind of take over your life. And, and until we as a society figure out, or we as individuals almost, figure out how to how to protect ourselves from that kind of manipulation, we're just, you know, we're just tools, right? We're just, we're just going to do whatever the machines tell us to do. And, and I don't think that's what we want. Well, I'm really glad that there's researchers thinking in that direction of how to protect us and not I know, just how right? to exploit and I, these mechanisms. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And, and, and it's fun to think that, that, you know, we doing computational reinforcement learning research are helping to inform that community, helping to give them tools for thinking about their problems and in exchange, they're like, you know, protecting us from the big bad, uh, you know, uh, casinos that are, that are after us. I, I want to move on to your MOOCs. You have some, um, some great MOOC courses. I can't say I've done them, but uh, I see that you have <laughs> on Udacity, RL, and machine learning. Do you, do you plan to do more of this? Uh, that, yeah. So, so I've done, let's see, uh, when shortly after Udacity became a thing, uh, I was in touch with Sebastian Thrun and, and asked him, you know, I just thought this was really neat and it was cool that people were doing it. And I wanted to learn about this, you know, this new wave of, 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 of or organizing educational materials for people. And so I actually got to, to spend, I, th I think it was like a week and a half or two weeks out in Silicon Valley working at Udacity. And I put together a class on what do we call it? Crunching social networks, something like that. But it was basically an, a graph, like an, a course on graph algorithms. And uh, and so that happened, and I was really excited, and I had a good time with it. And I kept asking Sebastian, you know, can I do more of this? Can I do more of this? He's like, mm, I'm I'm glad that you did it, but like he wasn't he wasn't letting me he wasn't giving me another opportunity. But then uh, Udacity and Georgia Tech ended up forming a partnership to create an online master's degree. And my good friend Charles Isbell was one of the people instigating that. And he said, 
okay, this is about to become a thing. Would you like to do a machine learning class with me? I'm like, yay. That's like, I get to be with Charles. I get to do another MOOC. Um, and I don't have to wait for Sebastian to say, okay. So, um, so we, we put together a machine learning class and, and that went really well. And then we put together a follow-up class specifically on reinforcement learning. Um, I still use those videos. I'm about to teach a reinforcement learning class on campus this, this fall. And the students will be asked to, you know, to watch videos from, uh, from that MOOC. So yeah, so that was that was super fun. We, I haven't done anything since then. Uh, I am now in the process of of trying to put together a class for a company. So it's not a, a massive open online course because it's not open. It's uh it's for for pay. But one of the things that I think is really fun about it is it's machine learning for not you don't have to be a computer science major. It's a it's a course where. Uh, if you're just interested in in hearing about what machine learning is about and learning about some of the the technologies underneath of it, that this would give you a, a chance to learn about that. So so I'm excited, and it's it's been a, a ton of work uh, because I can't depend on people knowing the kinds of mathematics and the kinds of of computer science algorithms that I would normally depend on in in an on campus class. And so boy, it's just there's there's just a lot of thinking about how to present the material so that the amount of background needed is, is small, as small as possible. So you appeared in a AAAI article called Ask Me Anything About MOOCs. But paraphrasing from something you said there, you said, I was drawn to MOOCs as an opportunity to turn teaching into a sequential decision-making problem where the student is the environment and the MOOC is the decision-maker. And then you went on to say that it's, that's been hard to achieve. Um, and then you have a 2018 paper, well, you co-authored a paper with uh, Saarinen, if I'm saying that correctly, called mm. Personalized Education at Scale, where you you look at this idea uh, of using RL in education, and you and the paper says um, suggests that sample-efficient RL could help optimize curricula for human learners. So how, I wonder, how far are we making, from making this type of approach to education practical? And uh, like, are MOOCs trying to do something like this right now? So I was amazed that the people who started the whole MOOC craze were almost all machine learning people. So uh, Daphne Kohler, Andrew Ng, Sebastian Thrun, uh, a lot of the the movers and shakers in Coursera, Udacity, um, probably some people at edX, but I didn't know them as well, were were not just computer scientists thinking about education, but they were specifically AI machine learning people thinking about education. And so it seemed obvious that 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 they were viewing this as a machine learning kind of platform right that we would be using this to to find ways of optimizing the process of education but it turns out they had bigger i don't know if they're bigger fish to fry they had different fish to fry they had so many things to worry about in terms of getting these companies out and stable that the the machine learning aspect which which surely they were thinking about it never really got surfaced. It never really became part of of what they were what they were doing. They were saving their data, but they weren't really doing it in a way that um, that was going to be able to translate into optimizing the process. So I've I've now had two PhD students who've been really interested in this question of how we can do that. Uh, one uh, now graduated student named Vukasi Maravate. He um, he took a stab at it and didn't really get very far. A part of it is that that he was doing that and he was trying to do reinforcement learning for medicine at the same time, and we were trying to make you know fundamental contributions to the machine learning literature. And so I think he just didn't he just wasn't enough in the education side to be able to have that kind of impact. 
After that, though, uh, this Saarinen, Sam Saarinen, is, is a current PhD student of mine, and he's really committed to the education side. He's been doing work with uh, computer science education folks in my department and um, is, is taking it really seriously, going out and, and learning that literature, uh, talking to companies that, that are collecting data, talking to, talking to them about ways to collect data differently, being willing to think about uh, uh, KRM bandit problems as opposed to the full reinforcement learning problem with the idea that, that uh, it's a simpler version of the problem, but more likely we'll be able to get the right kind of data and make the right kind of judgments based on that. And it looks like that's going to be his, his PhD dissertation. We're going to focus on these, these questions of how to get data from people and how to turn that back into, in decisions and, and see that those decisions are actually causing improvements in something measurable about their learning. So, so I think we're poised to to make some contributions to this area now. But yeah, it's been it's been a long time since the first MOOC came out, and yeah, I don't I I can't think of too many positive examples of of machine learning really having a, a substantial impact on the way that the learning's happening. I remember seeing an M Emma Brunskill talk about uh, her using RL in in some kind of course um, curriculum design in terms of which which um, topics should be covered next but you know as i think about this i'm like well like teachers have all this built-in knowledge and intuition about how students are learning and in what order to do things and how how to approach things and and i, I can't imagine like teacher uh, a system trying to use like epsilon greedy to figure out how to teach mm. a course um so it seems like we have to somehow combine what the teachers understand and figure out what is remains to be learned. So, so I, I wonder how, how would you approach that in terms of what, what should be learned and what should be built in um, to a system like that? I, I think one of the things that we're doing that's a little different now is that we're taking a step back and trying to teach much simpler things. I think that the, the dream of being able to, for example, take everything that people uh, need to learn about mathematics, say, and then organizing it into a flow, right, so that so that the right topics are being introduced at the right times and the right assessments are taking place so that you can potentially have people skip over things that they understand well or dive more deeply into things that they haven't quite gotten yet. Um, th I think that was the dream, and I think that might just, we just might not be ready for that yet. So the kinds of problems that, that we might look at, Sam and I might look at, include things of uh, you know, you, should, you, you need to memorize a big list of things. You need to memorize, uh, you know, the, the the major historical events in some, I don't know, in say Russian history or something like that, right? So you need to be able to associate events and dates and things like that. It's not it's not a deep kind of cognitive understanding, and there's no real sequentiality to it. But uh, but it turns out that for getting people to remember facts, just kind of dry facts, um, showing it to them once is not enough. Showing it to them repeatedly is important, but the timing of those repetitions is also very important. You want to you want to what you want to do what's called spaced repetition. You want to um, basically remind somebody of a fact that they're just about to forget but haven't quite forgotten yet. Um, and typically, that causes them to actually remember it for much longer, but they're still eventually going to forget. And you need to remind them again before they forget. And so the the typical pattern of forgetting follows a, a kind of an exponential curve. Each time they're reminded there's some multiplicative factor longer that they're going to remember it for. And so figuring out what those those quantities are is a much easier learning problem, right? Figuring out how fast people are going to forget something and then reminding them right before they forget is a much easier problem than organizing the entire curriculum, the entire set of topics and how they interrelate to each other. 
And so we want to try to get a handle on that simpler problem first. Uh, I'd like to move on to uh, a paper that you recently co-authored that was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. It was called People Teach with Rewards and Punishments as Communication, Not Reinforcements. And that was by Ho et al. Um, this paper draws a distinction between reinforcement learning directly from a reward signal and then something a little more subtle that you're calling communication. Can you help us understand the difference here? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, just to give a little bit of context, I've always been a bit of a psychology groupie. So when I was an undergraduate, I was I was a computer science major, but I, I took a ton of psychology classes and, and my actual on-campus job was, was as a research assistant in a psychology lab. And so I've always hung around with the psychologist, but I've never really gotten to publish in, in the area. And uh, when I got to, to start working with Mark Ho, when he was a PhD student in psychology at Brown, he was also doing a master's degree in computer science with me. And so I got, I had access to this, this, you know, budding psychology superstar. And uh, one of the questions that we ended up looking at together was this notion of how do, how do people provide rewards and punishments? And how is that similar and different from the way that reward functions do, right? So we have in reinforcement learning algorithms that can learn from reward feedback. And the reward is provided by some some function, right, that says, okay, well, if you destroy this enemy in this situation, you get 10 points. If you get stuck in this situation, you lose two points. Like, th- there's a whole, there's a whole menu of, uh, or, or like, a, like a cost list of what all the different things in the world are and how much they're worth. And then the algorithm is then trying to just maximize profit. So it's reasonable to think, well, when people are giving rewards and punishments for, for teaching, you know, like a little kid or, or an animal or, or, you know, just or each other, um, that they're giving rewards and punishments in a way that's really similar to that. But that turns out not to be the case. So the most obvious thing you can see along these lines is if you're trying to tell an agent ha- how to behave and it starts behaving in the, in the way that you want it to behave – your tendency is going to be to withdraw reward, right? Once it's doing the right thing, you don't have to reward it anymore. It's doing the right thing. And so what people will tend to do is they'll give a lot of reward when things are heading in the right direction, and then they'll start to back off from that reward when, uh, when the system is doing the right thing, right? So does that, does that make sense? Does that, does, does that jibe with your intuitions about how you would give reward if you were doing this over a long period of time? Yeah, totally. I wouldn't want to have to keep rewarding that same behavior uh, Right, right. It, it, and it feels almost unnatural. It's almost almost insulting, right? It's like, okay, you know, if I were the learner, like, okay, I know, I get it. You don't have to tell me anymore. Um, but if you do, if you do that to a to a Q learner, if you do that to a standard reinforcement learner, and you withdraw the the reward that it's getting, it's that's going to force it to start getting TD errors. Like, it's expecting a reward, it didn't get the reward, so something's wrong. It needs to update its model. It needs to change its behavior to try to get more reward, and so everything falls apart. So if you try to train a reinforcement learner with a human as the reward function, it tends to degrade really rapidly. Like it heads in a good direction and then it starts to fall apart because people stop giving the reward. The, 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 the stopping to give reward is actually a symptom of a much more systematic process that the, that the people giving rewards seem to be undergoing. What they seem to be doing is they are making internal predictions about how the learner is doing, how good is it at the task. And then they're providing positive rewards when the behavior that they exhibit exceeds that expectation. They're giving sort of neutral rewards when it is kind of consistent with their expectations. And they're giving punishment, negative rewards, if it's degrading, if somehow that the performance is falling off from what was expected. 
And as the learner is learning, the, this is a moving target, right? It's, it's you're trying to tell it, well, here's here's positive reward for doing the next thing that you need to be doing to, towards the, the behavior that you should be learning. And so the, the, the idea that once the system actually is learning to do the correct thing, that people would back off with the positive reward, that's just uh, one special case of this sort of more general thing, which seems to be that people are providing advantage feedback. They're, they're, they're providing information about the performance of the agent relative to its current expectations or its current baseline. And so from that perspective, we need different kinds of reinforcement learning algorithms to take advantage of that kind of feedback. We can't just use Q-learning because Q-learning is it interprets the rewards very differently than what people are actually providing. So you have a paper called Convergent Actor Critic by Humans with uh, McGlashan et al. Is that is that what you're talking about there with the uh, the humans providing that advantage signal to the critic? Yeah. So that was in some ways that was the the capstone of a long series of papers where we were starting to get a handle on what we were understanding about. Uh, about learning from people. There was a separate, in addition to the work that I was involved in with Mark Ho, um, th- th- we had a collaboration with folks at NC State and Washington State University, um, Matt Taylor's group and, and David Roberts's group, where we were f- following a very similar kind of pathway of trying to figure out what is it that, what is it the information that people are providing and how can we make good use of it? And both efforts ended up converging on this idea of, well, really the reward signal is the trainer's way of saying, yes, you're going in the right direction. So it, it really is a kind of communication more than it is a, a quantity to be maximized, right? Uh, if you just think of it in terms of profit maximization, you end up being misled by these signals. You have to really think of them as an indicator to kind of nudging you in the right direction. And so we ended up with a whole sequence of algorithms uh, for dealing with this kind of feedback. And I think, I think Coach, well, Coach was the last one in that sequence. And, um, and I think it really did build on the insights that we had gotten through that whole, I don't know, five or six year period of, of, uh, of exploring those questions. So it seems like there's, that's one of the challenges with human feedback. And then in, in, in the Deep Coach paper, you mentioned human feedback is, is often delayed because um, it can't be, humans can't be as real time. Are the, is, that, is that another one of the challenges? Are there other challenges with, with incorporating humans in, in this loop? That's right. So, uh, right. So delay in actually providing that, that information um, can, well, has to be taken into consideration. And so we had a mechanism in, in the paper that you're referring to where we, it was essentially a kind of trace, kind of the same kind of trace that you see in TD learning of just keeping information around so that when the feedback actually happens, it can be applied to what was in memory when the learning should have been taking place. That work, it hasn't quite finished yet, right? We haven't quite gotten that to scale and to be robust. Uh, but that was the direction that we were going when we wrote that paper. So in that Conversion Actor Critic by Humans paper, there's a line that says, nearly half of American households have a pet dog and at least some exposure to animal training, suggesting an alternative path for customizing robot behavior. Sounds like you're suggesting there could be a whole human skill involved in how to train a robot using these types of signals. Do you see, do you see things unfolding that way? I do. I'm, I'm excited about that idea. So I don't know. Have you ever tried to train a pet, like a dog or anything? I am trying to train our puppy right now. Mm. <laughs> it's challenging. Yeah. Did you take any classes? I did. Um, I probably need a lot more classes. <laughs> right. So I think I think a, a thing that 
well, okay, so I grew up with cats and stuff, and we didn't even make any attempt to train the cats. But but uh, I got married and had kids, and, and the family, the rest of the family pushed, like, we're going to have a dog, we're going to have a dog. And so I'm like, it's not my dog, but sure, you can have it in the house. I just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't belong to me. But, you know, that being said, we're, we're buddies now, and she, she's sleeping next to me right now as I'm talking to you. And um, that's, I mean, the dog, not the spouse. The the thing, so I went to the, some some of these training classes early on, and it was it was really remarkable to me how much of a skill it really seems to be. That it seems so natural. It's like, yeah, you just reward it for good things and you punish it for bad things. It's like, no, <laughs> it's it's much more subtle than that. And and part of it is kind of getting into the seeing the world through the anim, from the animal's perspective. So you know that when you're giving a, a reward, that it's being interpreted as a reward for the right thing, and not just just a kind of random occurrence. And one of the things that we discovered in the coach work, so you mentioned James McGlashan. So he became a kind of robot whisperer during that work. He, he implemented the algorithm on a, a turtle bot, which is like a Roomba with kind of a computer strapped to the top of it. And man, he could make that robot do amazing things. He, he would just like, you know, look deep into its eyes and understand sort of how it was seeing the world. I mean, he wrote the code too, so that helps. Um, and giving just the right reward at just the right time and getting it to do kind of remarkable things. One of the things in, in that coach paper that you mentioned, we did experiments with James as the trainer. We never really got other people to be able to be the trainer, partly because um, – it's just hard to bring you know random people into the lab and, and and train them up on this on this task, but partly because it really it really was hard. It really wasn't the case that um, that you could just start giving you know random rewards and punishments and it's all going to just turn out fine. That you have to be thinking about what the perception of the machine is and how it's likely to change its behavior to give this feedback at this time. And so even though our goal is to make a system that is going to be really amenable to to a broad variety of end users, we're not there yet. At the moment, it's still a specialized skill and you need, well, at the moment, you need to be James to, to be really good at it. It almost makes you wonder if we need some kind of translation layer between the way humans would normally convey what they want and what the RL needs to experience to, to do the learning. Those, those, those two things are quite different. Yeah, that could related. be. I mean, it's so one of the things that occasionally occurs to me when I do this kind of work is that as an educator, I think I tend to undervalue education or educating as a skill, right? Because it's like the thing I just like, you know, if, if you speak English as your, as your first language, you don't have to, you don't think about the fact that that's actually kind of a really powerful tool for, you know, working in the global economy. And there's many people who have to work really, really hard to get to that point. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a valuable skill that you have and you got it sort of for free, but, um, but it's still incredibly valuable. This, this notion of being able to, to engage in, in an educational process, to be able to take a hard problem, break it down into pieces, and then convey those pieces to an individual, you know, if you do it all the time as part of your job, you might not think about the fact that it's actually a, a really great skill. And it, it, it is a skill that not everybody has, uh, has developed to the same degree. I think everybody's pretty good at it because I think just to be able to talk – just to be able to explain something to somebody, and we all do that all the time, you have to have some practice in in taking complex concepts and breaking them down into simpler pieces. But the folks that can really do this at a at a I don't know at a at a level that that is is able to break down extremely complicated problems, that's a skill, and that's not a skill that everybody has. And I think uh, training these robots is a similar kind of thing. It's not the case that we just everyone just naturally has it, and it's just a question of translating their what they, what they say into rewards and punishments so that it works better. It's a question of 
the things that they say differ depending on whether they've really kind of thought deeply about how to do teaching. And so it might not be so simple, right? It might be that, you know, we all need to, to, to work a little harder to tell machines what we want them to do. Part of it is even knowing what you want, right? So some people haven't thought hard enough about what it is that they want. And of course, if you don't know what it is that you want, breaking it down in a way to convey to a machine isn't going to happen. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced at the moment. It's just like, oh, we just need the right interface. We just need the right translator. I think part of it is we have to encourage people to, to think a little more clearly. And then, then maybe it's not a, a, that hard a problem anymore. Hmm. So with these um, methods of using human feedback, can the human feedback be given in batches after the fact? Or is it kind of like on policy where the humans really need to be in there real time? I would say that the evidence from education is that like so so when when textbooks first appeared and when videos educational videos first appeared a lot of times the perception is oh well this is going to replace teachers right because you can now have like the 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 most accomplished experts in the world get their thoughts down convey them to people perfectly and now it's just going to like run inside their heads it's going to be ideal uh, the fact of the matter is having teachers that are there with the student in the loop, right, that they're both having the same experiences at the same time and they can adapt to each other, you know, we haven't replaced that. We don't really know what's happening, I think, in that loop, but uh, it does really seem to be important. And I think that's true in, the, in, in this uh, robot training setting as well, that if we're trying to get the robot to learn, just giving it a whole big batch of experience and letting it process it offline is in general not going to be as powerful as, as having uh, you know, a person there helping to interpret the situations uh, on, you know, on behalf of the robot. Um, but you know, really what you want is a mix, right? You want the robots to be you know, whatever, dreaming offline, processing this information offline, getting, squeezing the most offline information that they, they can get out of it. Um, and then when they are able to interact live with it, with a trainer to, to get the most of, that they can out of that as well. Going back to this, um, people teach with rewards and punishments as communications paper. That paper mentions theory of mind and cognitive hierarchies. Can you touch on how, um, theory of mind relates to communication here and, and what these cognitive hierarchies are and what they help us do? So I think the best way to, to think about a cognitive hierarchy is it's a way of trying to snip or simplify the infinite recursion that you get when you've got two minds thinking about each other. So whenever, whenever communication is taking place, and again, I, I believe that teaching is a form of communication, right? The teacher has information that needs to run inside the learner's head so that that communication has to happen. Whenever there's there's whenever you're thinking about commu communication, there's the, the the teacher is trying to convey information, but what how how is the teacher trying to convey information? The teacher should say whatever it is that the learner will interpret, you know, in the way that the, the teacher is hoping that the learner will change, right? So the 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 learner has some I don't want to say deficit, but has some sort of gap between their current state of knowledge and where the teacher is trying to get them to go, and so the learner has to say something so that that gap will get bridged to some degree. All right, so, so the teacher has to think about what's going on in the head of the learner. But the learner should also be thinking about what's going on in the head of the teacher. It's like, why did the teacher say that to me just now? Like, oh, the teacher's trying to get me to understand this. Great. Okay, so if the, the learner is kind of an active participant in this communicate, communicative act, then the learner is also thinking about the fact that the teacher is thinking about what the student is trying to think about. And we can just keep spinning this out 
infinitely, right? So the teacher has to think about the fact that the student is thinking about what the teacher's thinking about, that the student's thinking about, that the teacher's thinking about, that the student's mind is going to change. And (laughs) this never ends, right? And so, so what the cognitive hierarchy idea says is, you know what? This has to end, right? If we do this infinitely deeply, sure, it's possible that I'll be able to say like one weird sound like brr, and that will have exactly the right cascading effect into the learner's head, and suddenly the learner knows everything, right? It's maybe, maybe, but more likely, we're going to spend tons and tons of time thinking about each other's, you know, recursively modeling each other in in a way that's pretty fruitless, so the cognitive hierarchy idea says, no, 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 let's just go back and forth some finite amount of time. We're, we're going to say, I should be saying things so that the learner should be hearing things in the context that I'm saying something that the learner's mind has to change, something like that. So just by, by clipping this hierarchy and taking it only to a certain depth, um, but, but more than just one, right? Don't just say the thing, literally, just you, you want to say the thing so that it has the right effect, um, and the learner knows that. So you do want to do a couple of levels maybe back and forth, but but not infinitely deep. And so the cognitive hierarchy idea says, okay, let's do this to some probably pretty small but non-zero levels of, of mutual modeling. So it's like on Twitter, it's like, do you take that tweet literally? Is it ironic? Is it sarcasm on top of irony? How far do you go? There must be some point of diminishing returns where you're like, okay, that's what they really meant. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of Twitter having diminishing returns. It does. I feel like that fits. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's right. That, and but that's that's true of any kind of communication. I think that Twitter maybe makes that more obvious to us because we're talking to people who we don't necessarily have great individual models of, right? When we're talking to a friend. We have plenty of experience that tells us how how deeply this back and forth should go, but when we're doing it on Twitter, there's just so many people and they're so different and they're and they're so unfamiliar that yeah, you're right. You have to you you need to be thinking about it and you need to be almost almost calculating it carefully. So um, so yeah, so in in the context of doing training or or teaching, uh, this kind of cognitive hierarchy can be a useful structure for um, for deciding how to how to present the material in the most effective way. For completeness, do you want to touch on what theory of minds uh, refers to? Sure, yeah. So the, I guess theory of mind is essentially this, this notion of recursive modeling, that, we're, that, we're, that we think not just about, I guess the, the, the thing that's not theory of mind or is proto-theory of mind is the idea that when I'm trying to understand your behavior, I imagine that you're me that you have what in your head, what I have in my head, and therefore the decisions you make are exactly the decisions I would make in that same circumstance. So that's already a pretty powerful perspective to say, hey, I can put myself into your shoes and understand your behavior through my own lens. What theory of mind does is is it takes that one step further and says, yeah, but you may have had different experiences than I have. So you might act differently than I would. If just putting myself in your shoes and imagining how I would act, knowing what I know, is not necessarily how you are going to act because you know some things that are different from what I know. And so this is a remarkably powerful, even you know, more powerful way of, of predicting the behavior of other minds is to, is to build out this kind of, you know, almost simulate their, their inputs, their experiences to, the, to a sufficient degree that you can predict how they're going to respond to, to new stimuli. And um, and people get pretty good at this by age. I think it's like seven or so. Um, people who are autistic have a, 
a very difficult time with this. They can learn to do it, but it becomes sort of a, like a conscious computation. But um, I guess neurotypical people, by the time they're seven or eight years old, do this without even thinking about it and can, can develop very rich models of a whole network of people and how they're interacting with each other. And so there's reason to think, well, boy, if we're, if we're trying to make agents that are doing good decision-making in networks of other agents, including people, they're going to have to do some amount of this theory of mind stuff, right? It's not going to be enough for them to just try to be maximizing reward. They need to be also thinking about the impact that their actions have on the mental state of the other agents in, in the environment. So you co-authored another paper, Theory of Minds, Understanding Behavior in Groups Through Inverse Planning with Shum et al. Can you talk about the idea behind this paper? Right. So continuing this idea of uh, if we're trying to act in amongst other agents, it's really useful to be able to have an understanding of how the, how they're going to make their decisions. The the specific idea. Well, so let me let me let me mention some work that's that's not mine. Um, so Anka Dragan, who's now at the uh, UC Berkeley, did some really neat work in thinking about robot motion control, so deciding where a robot's arm should move, taking into consideration the way that motion's going to be perceived. So if, for example, a robot's trying to hand an object to another person, it's not enough to just put the object in a place where that person can grab it. You have to be signaling to the person where they should be reaching next. And the more legible, the more interpretable the movement is, the more effective that the collaboration's going to be. And so she's developed motion planning algorithms that do a kind of theory of mind idea. They do think about uh, not just I need to physically move to this position, but the, 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 the trajectory that the robot takes en route to that is affecting the mental state of the other person. And we want to have the right effect on that mental state. So it sounds like we're talking about action as communication, and earlier we were talking also about reward as communication. It seems like a common thread here. That's right. So action can be communication. Reward can be communication. You know, communication can be communication, like, you know, words and things like that. Um, and so in the context of the paper that you're referring to, that was another one of these actions as communication scenarios where the individual agents were trying to think about there was, there was a group of agents, and they all had their own goals, and people watching this were then asked to interpret what goals were the different individuals trying to carry out. How were they thinking of themselves as sub-teams within the bigger group of agents? And people seemed to be actually remarkably good at this, and we were able to model the way that people do this calculation, or at least the end goal of, of, of what they compute by saying, oh, well, well, one thing they could be doing is inverse planning. They could be thinking, well, if this was the mental state of these agents, then I'd expect them to behave like this. That's not how they behaved. So I should you know, use that information with Bayes' rule to try to condition, well, what would be a more likely way that they, that the, of their, a more likely description of their mental states? So you know, seeing the behavior and then running that behavior backwards in a sense to say, well, what is it that they're trying to do? Uh, gives a window into what's going on inside the, the heads of the agents. I guess this reminds me of poker, where you're constantly having to think about what does the other person know or think they know. Um, I, I noticed you had some some papers on poker in, in your past, and then uh, recently we had we saw Pluribus uh, making some strides in poker. Is theory of minds going to be relevant in, in those types of games? 
Definitely. So, so def- definitely the idea of modeling what's going on in the other agent's head is a really critical uh, element to the way that the best poker players play, both machine and human. One difference between uh, fully elaborated theory of mind and the kind of poker theory of mind is that in the poker setting, everything is intended to be misleading, right? Like most of what you're trying to do with your actions is to communicate the wrong thing. Right to the extent that you're actually conveying to the other player the cards that you have hidden that only you know about, you're actually doing yourself a disservice because it is a purely competitive game. There's there's other games, uh, and so Michael Bowling, who's worked substantially on poker, um, has has also written some papers on uh, on cooperative games where you need, but it seems as though you need a theory of mind. That was another one of the talks at the RLDM conference. Uh, he talked about a game called Hanabi, which is a purely cooperative game with a group of people where everyone has a, a, a you know a hand like like uh, cards that, that that they have that are private cards of their own. But unlike normal games where you face the cards to yourself and only you know it, you actually face the cards outwards, and everybody but you knows what you have in your hand. And they have to, by their actions in the game, convey to you enough information so they know what's in their hands, so you know what's in your hands, so that you can make the right actions in the game and and we can all win. And that's a game where it really feels like you need sophisticated theory of mind. You need to say, you know, a player needs to say, huh, I'm going to take this action because I think you're going to wonder, why would I have taken that action? And the only explanation you're going to be able to come up with is, is this, which is exactly what I want you to know, because I want you to take this action, and that's how I'm going to tell you. It's just, it's, you, if you haven't played this yet, it's, it's, uh, it's a real kicker. There's, it, you, you start to access parts of your brain you, that, uh, that are very under-exercised, and it's, it's a really cool feeling. There's new RL algorithms coming out all the time. Should we expect this to continue indefinitely, or should we expect that somehow they'll be we'll reach saturation and we'll have just enough of them? <laughs> so I remember. Uh, so I don't know if you know who Andrew Moore is, but he was a big contributor to reinforcement learning in the early days. He he ultimately became um, a professor at CMU, and then he became a uh, high-level manager at Google in Pittsburgh, and then he came back to CMU and was the dean of computing. And uh, now he's off someplace else. He might be back at Google. Um, but uh, I remember him saying at one point in the early days of reinforcement learning, boy, you know, it seems as though we have a different algorithm for each, you know, minor variation of what you can do with a, with a Markov decision process. And that to me implies that we can actually generate an infinite series of papers that make zero progress towards the goal, right? That we're not actually getting better at solving problems. <laughs> we just are, are, you know, shattering the, the, the all these special cases and coming up with special case algorithms for each of them, and I, you know, I that's yeah, you know, it's a valid observation, but it doesn't seem to be what happened. It doesn't seem as though what the field did was then articulate all these different minor variations and then develop different algorithms for each of them. Um, you know, some of that always happens. There's always research that is that's more incremental that may or may not have an impact on the kind of broad trajectory of the field, but. You know, but if you look back at the history from then to now, I don't think you'd just describe it the way that he was predicting it would it would play out. I think what you see is, um, you know, well, you see things like DQN popping out of uh, you know interesting combinations of ideas from different fields, and so yeah, we're seeing lots of algorithms now. I think I think that I think that's common. I think it's I think there's like phases that a field goes through, um, and we're in a in a kind of local search mode right now where we're doing little tweaks on on the same kinds of algorithms 
but um, but we're going to get tired of that. We're going to we're going to get there's the, the, the people just don't stay interested in that kind of oh here's a one tenth improvement on this one game. Um, eventually, they're going to either just you know give up on this area and just think okay well we've solved it as best we can solve it let's move on to something else, or there's going to be a way of, of seeing it from a different perspective that's going to result in in more you know more rapid progress more more larger strides per unit time do you think that there's some like upper bounds on how sample efficient um, model free rl can can yes and like are we getting are we approaching that or are we still really far away from that like how much can we squeeze out of these trajectories right so it strikes me that it's a losing battle that the fact of the matter is general mdps are really hard you can, you can embed really hard problems in these MDPs that if you want to say, I've got an algorithm that's super fast and super general, you, you're lying. You can't, you can't be both. There's, there's kind of, there must be some kind of no free lunch you know, idea in the context of reinfor- reinforcement learning problems. So I would not expect it to be the case that we can just, just by using completely general techniques, squeeze out the maximum amount of generalization from a given trajectory. It strikes me, well, I mean, sometimes I think about that we're really sort of solving the wrong problem. To, to the extent that we're trying to make, an, we're trying to make it a, a reinforcement learning algorithm, and then we demonstrate it on a single environment. Really, the best way of solving that single environment is to just present the policy for that environment. You don't want a learning algorithm at all if that's the problem you're trying to solve. It only makes sense to use a learning algorithm if the if the the learning algorithm doesn't know in advance which problem it's going to need to solve, right? That we need to be able to evaluate them with respect to uh, a set of possible problems, and if that set is all possible MDPs, then I think it's extremely limited as to what we'll be able to get an algorithm to do. If, on the other hand, that set is a is a constrained set of MDPs, like the MDPs representing the you know the thermodynamics of my house you know, for 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 moving the thermostat around. Um, you could imagine lots of different houses with you know with variability in terms of the thermodynamics, but it's a much more constrained space than the space of all possible MDPs. And so, to me, then the right problem is okay. Find me a, a learning algorithm for that. Now, it could be that we have to pick by hand a couple applications domains and then come up with specialized learning algorithms for those application domains, I'm not so interested in that. I'd be much more interested in the meta reinforcement learning problem, which is given a sample of a set of domains that are interrelated in some way, derive, use, automatically derive a reinforcement learning algorithm that's going to be most effective for that set of problems. That to me is, I think that's the problem that we really should be working on. Hmm. So is this would this partly be your response to Richard Sutton's bitter lesson post where he talks about how um, compute seems to conquer all as opposed to um, human designed algorithms? Oh, it may be that we got to the same punchline through very different paths. Yeah. So the bitter lesson article that was that was that got a lot of attention and got people very excited. Uh, my understanding is that Ichkai this year there was a couple couple invited talks that that directly addressed um, that whole discussion. Um, you know, the it, in some sense it's kind of the opposite of the bitter lesson. So the bitter lesson thing says don't try to solve specific problems, just throw more compute at it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we want specialized algorithms for 
for particular kinds of problems. And in particular, if we're going to try to, if the learning algorithm needs to learn with a very small amount of data, that, that it doesn't make any sense to throw very, very general algorithms that require tons and tons of data, right? You just can't use them. We have to break it down in a way that's going to uh, allow an algorithm to do more with the small amount of data that it's got. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that being said, what I, you know, what I proposed is that we, that we focus on algorithms that, that work at the meta level and that those algorithms can be very powerful and very general, but those aren't the algorithms that we would actually deploy in the, in the setting where they actually have to do the learning. This is a thing that we would do offline ahead of time to create those algorithms. So, yes. <laughs> so, um, so is that what our brains are doing? Like, do we have, does our brains just have this huge menu of, of specialized and general algorithms and we're, we're kind of a meta learner that's, that's just quickly figures out which one to throw at this particular situation? Well, so I would, what do you the first thing I would there? say is that, that, well, maybe, but um, in some ways, I think of this analogy as happening at the evolutionary level, like people are born not to be completely general learners. Um, maybe to a, you know, maybe they, maybe you can evolve towards completely general learning, or you can have thoughts that allow you to build a completely general learner in software. But but by and large, we are born with lots of biases about the way that our world is structured, and that is critical for being able to learn sufficiently rapidly that you know, within our lifetime, we can actually use the knowledge that we gain. So, so I think of evolution as doing the job of, of meta-learning in the case of people. But uh, yeah, but I guess I, I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but I would say that you're probably right, that, that uh, people, especially people who are engaged in problem solving as a, as a kind of first-class activity, like they're not just solving problems because they have a problem, they're like solving problems because they like to engage in the process of problem solving. They, to some extent, are are learning something like that. They're learning, uh, okay, here's a new problem. Does this remind me of other problems that I've solved in the past? What sort of procedures did I follow in those cases that actually got me to a solution? Let me try those in this case. Hopefully, they'll they'll get me to where I want to go, right? There's, there's no guarantee that that's going to work because we can create problems that are arbitrarily uh, sort of cryptic, right? That, that, that they, what they look to be on the surface and, and what they actually require in terms of solution are so different that you, you, end, you end up having to just kind of check all possible solutions uh, to see if one of them works. But, uh, but that's not normal, right? Normally, we see problems and they actually do bear some resemblance to problems that we've seen before. And so, yeah, so we do get kind of that, that meta problem solving capability uh, to work for us. In broad strokes, do you feel like there's different schools of thought in the RL research community or differing ideas of what's important? And like, how well distributed is a deep understanding of RL? Um, I guess what comes to mind for me is like, is DeepMind hoovering up, you know, the lion's share of the talent in this field? Or would you say that RL talent is, is well spread out? So the high level picture from my perspective is that any any topic, if you zoom in close enough, you're going to see camps, right? That it, there's not u perfect uniformity, so of course there's going to be camps. I think that the reinforcement learning field is more coherent than a lot of fields out there, um, but it is not perfectly coherent. And I do think that there's some people who put more emphasis on the theoretical aspects, the guarantees that you can get out of algorithms. Some people put more emphasis on their 
the the performance empirically. And so if they can actually get a system to do kind of, you know, amazing jumping through hoop stuff, then uh, then they're very content, uh, even if they don't have any guarantees about how, how that algorithm will perform on other problems. So, yeah, I do think that there's some uh, change, differences in emphasis, but there's actually a fair amount of consistency in terms of what the problem is and, um, you know, if not always in, in whether or not it's been solved. As far as whether or not DeepMind is is uh, has got the lock on on the talent in the community, uh, it is definitely the case that they've got a ton of people. <laughs> it's I, I don't know that history has ever seen such a concentration of of researchers in an area, uh, certainly not in a computer science area, uh, doing you know doing such such similar stuff uh, on, on such a large scale. Um, yeah, I worry as to whether that's sustainable on both sides, whether the, whether they'll continue to be supported uh, within the, the Google umbrella um, and whether the field can stay healthy if so many people are, you know, sucked into that vortex. Um, you know, my guess, if I had to guess, is that it's not going to last forever. Um, eventually, it will be, you know, people will, will go back to the various places that they came from or that they, they, they're going to go to next. And there will be this this nice dissemination, not just of interest in reinforcement learning, but also the tremendous, um, you know, procedural things that 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 the, the DeepMind people have figured out that allow them to run such large scale experiments and to to answer such big questions. So I, yeah. So at the moment, I do think that it's not things are not spread very evenly. We don't have the 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 strength. In the universities that is that can sustainably produce, uh, you know, top-notch researchers to go out into the world and, and and attack these problems, I think a lot of people are getting distracted and pulled into the into this company, and so we're, we'll see kind of a, uh, you know, just a, a maybe a dip in our ability to produce the next generation of researchers. But I do think that that ultimately it's going to be. Uh, to everyone's benefit, that, that 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 having these people together, doing the kind of work that they're doing, sharing some of the results, sharing their knowledge in various ways, it will it will disseminate, even if it's not, even if right now they're they're pretty uh, closed in terms of of what they can share. I saw some of your performances on YouTube. Uh, you have a thriller video, TurboTax commercial. Um, it seems like you have a lot of fun with this stuff. <laughs> Do you do you see doing more acting uh, or music in in your future? Um, maybe a big screen cameo for a, an AI professor. <laughs> well, okay, so um, I would love that. And so, if you have any pull, you know, feel free to make it happen. I'd be super excited. You know, all those things that that I've done, um, I have I, I think back on very fondly. It was it was a great experience, and I, I really enjoyed doing it. I am now trying to find ways, like being on your podcast. Of getting to to getting out there and, and speaking, you know, to, to uh, being involved in the conversation in a more public way, and so this is something that I'm really excited about. I think is important, um, and I'd like to do more of. So yeah, you know, if uh, if uh, Hollywood comes a knocking, I probably will will answer the door. Great Hollywood, I hope you're listening, <laughs> Professor Michael Littman. Uh, I've learned so much from you, and uh, from the little that I've read of your work, um, it's been. A, a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for, for sharing your insight and your time with me today. Uh, it was a treat to talk to you. Thanks thanks so much for just being so engaged and, and f- for helping to get the word out to a broader community.
That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes.